0: Our passage today comes from Romans 9, verses 1 through 13. Starting in verse 1, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. She was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated.
1: Thank you, Mackenzie. Well, this morning we are continuing our sermon series um, in the book of Romans, and as we do, we come to Romans chapter 9. And as we begin this morning, I want to begin kind of with a, a scenario, a picture, a question just for you to Think about when it comes to just your own life. If any of you ever had a, a boss, a, a friend, a family member, a spouse, a church leader, or anybody else that you know, make a decision or do something that you, you didn't agree with. Okay, everybody. Yes, we, we all have, right? I think we've all had somebody in our life do something, make a decision that, that we didn't initially agree with, that, that we didn't initially like, that we found to be confusing, that we weren't, really weren't for sure as we looked at what they did or the decision they made, why they did what they did. But then, have any of you ever had that same boss, church leader, family member, friend, sit down with you and explain to you the purpose or the reason for what they did or the purpose or the reason for the decision they made that you initially didn't like or agree with. But once you understand the purpose and the reason behind what they did, then it made a lot more sense to you. And you began to better understand and see where they were coming from. Or you begin to better understand the, the heart behind the decision or the action that was made. You see, just, just looking at an, an action or looking at someone's decision in a vacuum in and of itself, unattached to a purpose or a reason and a heart behind that decision and action can be really confusing and can cause you not to like it or agree with it. But once you understand the purpose and the reason behind it, then it begins to make a lot more sense. Well, that is kind of like, and I stress the words kind of like, the passage that we're going to be looking at this morning. That we're going to be looking at a passage that I would consider to be one of the most controversial, highly debated divisive passages that speaks about a doctrine of Scripture that many people don't like and that many people don't agree with in all of the Bible. And that particular doctrine that I'm talking about is none other than the doctrine of election. So on this Sunday morning before Christmas... Like 99.999% of all the other churches in the entire world are in Matthew 1 or 2 or Luke 1 or 2 talking about the virgin birth of Jesus, but not cross-fellowship church. We're in Romans 9 talking about God's election. And the way that this went down wasn't, we were in an elder meeting thinking, man, We haven't had a lot of, we haven't had enough controversy this year. Like, things have just been peaceful, there's been no debates, no differing views, and it's almost the end of the year. Like, we got two Sundays left, so what can we conjure up to cause a good fight in the life of our church? And then somebody who shall remain nameless raises their hand and says, I got an idea. What about Romans 9 and election? I promise you that that's not how it went down. Instead, if you've been with us for any length of time, we've been going through Romans since, I don't know, July. And in God's sovereignty of all things, we find ourselves in Romans chapter 9 um, this morning. And so that's what we're going to be talking about this morning but as we come to this controversial highly debated doctrine of scripture here's what Paul's going to do for us he's going to sit us down and he's going to explain to us the purpose of election he's going to explain to us God's purpose in election. He's going to explain to us the reason, the purpose for why God chooses individuals simply based upon his free sovereign choice. And again, I know that truth, even saying those words for for some of you 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 kind of you kind of just grit your teeth and you begin to be filled with all these objections and and all these questions and and all these other things. And I know that just even saying what I said, it's, it's, highly, it's, not, it's highly controversial. It's not very popular. And, and many don't like it. Many don't agree with it. But again, just hang in there with me. When we begin to see and understand the purpose behind God's election, then our perspective of this doctrine takes on a whole new light, a whole new understanding, and a whole new meaning. And that is really my heart for our time together this morning. Like my heart this morning is not for, for me to use this doctrine to divide us and give us just one more thing to debate and, and argue about this year. Instead, my heart this morning is for us to see God's purpose in election that my heart this morning is, is that we would see God's purpose behind election, God's purpose for election. And that as we see what God's purpose in election is, then I pray that then that would give us a fresh new understanding and a fresh new perspective of what God's election is all about. And as a result, it would help us to see this doctrine is not something that's divisive and controversial and therefore is to be avoided. Instead, it would help us to see just how beautiful and stunning this doctrine actually is. And so then here, here's, our, our, here's our plan kind of a, of attack for our time together this morning. That as you know, this isn't the easiest passage of scripture to understand and make sense of. We're going to take it in chunks. We're doing to verse 13 this morning, next week we're going to do um, to verse 29. But because of just kind of the challenges and the difficulty of this passage, what I want us to do is just, just kind of trace Paul's flow of thought, just kind of trace Paul's argument through these first 13 verses of Scripture. And as we trace Paul's flow of thought through these first 13 verses of Scripture, what I want us to be on the lookout for is is God's purpose. What is God's purpose in election? What is, the, what is the purpose of election? And as we see that purpose, then after we, we make our way through those first 13 verses, then I want us to take a step back. And then I want us to ask the question: okay, if that's God's purpose in election, then what are the practical implications of that purpose for our lives today? In other words, what, what effect then should this purpose of God in election have on our lives, practically speaking, on our lives today? So that's, that's where we're headed during the rest of our time together. So look there with me, starting there in chapter nine, starting there in verse one. Paul's gonna start there in verse one and chapter nine with a problem. And the problem that he's going to start with isn't probably the problem that you woke up struggling with and wrestling with this morning. You're you're going to see this problem and you're going to be like, that doesn't seem very relevant to me. That doesn't seem very applicable to me. But what we're going to see is that this problem that Paul is wrestling with here is very relevant for us. It's very applicable for us. And it has huge ramifications on our understanding of God and also our understanding of of God's purpose in election. So look at this problem. You can see it on your really the very beginning of your your handout here. Here's the problem that Paul addresses in the very beginning of chapter 9. It's this. It's that Israel is cursed by God and cut off from Christ. Again, at first glance, most of you this morning... That's not the problem that you woke up with. You woke up with the problem of of the baby that didn't sleep through the night, or you woke up with a financial problem or difficulty, or you woke up with a a marriage issue or a sin struggle or whatever. That's probably, probably in the issue or the problem that you woke up with this morning. But again, just hang here with me. You see the relevance of this problem for our lives today in this room. And we see it there starting in verse one. Look there with me, Paul writes this. He says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. So then right from the get-go, as you can tell here, Paul's in great anguish, isn't he? Like you can just feel the sorrow in Paul's heart. And the reason that Paul's experiencing so much turmoil and sorrow in his heart is because he says it's, it's because of his fellow Jews. It's because of his kinsmen, who he calls the, the Israelites. He, he says they've been accursed by God, meaning they've been destined to judgment. They've been condemned to judgment. They've been cut off from Christ. And the reason that Paul's so torn up over this is because these are his people, right? Like he's one of them. He, he hasn't been condemned to judgment, destined to judgment like they are. And so Paul's not saying here that, that every Jew has been accursed and condemned to judgment, but he is saying that the majority of them have. And so then as a result of that, Paul grieves, right? He's in anguish, he's in sorrow as he considers the wrath of God and the judgment of God and the condemnation of God that his fellow kinsmen, his Jewish brothers and sisters, are going to endure because of their rejection of Christ. You can just feel, right, just the emotion of Paul here. And you see it specifically there in verse 3. He says here, notice the language there? He says he could wish that he himself were accursed and cut off from Christ for their sake, meaning instead of them or or for them. But did you notice the language there? He says he could wish it, meaning if it were possible for him to be accursed and cut off from Christ in their place, then he'd wish it. But that's not possible. Like that can't happen. So he doesn't wish it, but he could wish it. He would wish it if it were possible. Look at verse 4. In verse 4 here, Paul's going to unpack all these all these different blessings or all these different privileges that his Jewish brothers in Christ, or his, not his in Christ, but his Jewish, bro, his Jewish brothers and his kinsmen who've been accursed and cut off from Christ have received from God. Look at all these privileges that they've received. He starts listing them out there in verse four. He says, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So we don't, we don't have time necessarily to unpack each and every one of these privileges, of Israel that God has given to Israel here that Paul lists. But, but do you see the point here that Paul's making here? He's saying that the people who've been accursed by God and condemned to judgment by God and cut off from Christ, those people are the same people that God adopted to be his son. They're the same people whom God's glory and presence dwelled with. They're the same people whom God entered into the special covenant relationship with and made all these promises with. Promises of how he's going to make them into a great nation and how they were going to be his treasured possession and how a great kingdom was going to come from them and how the Christ was going to come from them and rule and reign over them in this great kingdom forever and ever and ever. And so those were all the promises, right? that God made to Israel in the Old Testament. But now, they've been accursed by God, destined to judgment, condemned to judgment, and cut off from Christ. And because of that, then that raises like an all-important, serious question. And the question is this. Does that mean, then, that God's promises to Israel... Failed. That's the logical question, isn't it? If he made all these promises, but now they've been accursed and cut off from Christ, does that mean that God reneged on his promises? Does that mean that God went back on his promises? Or to state it more plainly, does it mean that God's a liar and not faithful and not trustworthy to the promises that he made? Did his promises to Israel fail? Well, Paul anticipated that question. And that's why then in verse 6, he goes on to answer that question. And look at the answer that he gives to that question there in verse 6. He says, But it is not as though the word or the promise of God has failed. In other words, God's not a liar. His promises to Israel haven't failed. He hasn't reneged. He hasn't gone back on the promises that he's made to them. And here's why. Here's why Paul can say that God's promises that he made to Israel haven't failed, even though that the majority of of people of Israel have been accursed by God and cut off from Christ. The reason that Paul can say that is found in the rest of verse 6. Look there with me. Paul says, for, so again, here's the reason the promises God God made to Israel haven't failed. For, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Did you catch that? The promises God made to Israel haven't failed because not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. So like, what in the world does that mean? Like, like, how can you be descended from Israel, but not belong to Israel? How, how can you be a descendant from Israel, not belong to Israel? Well, the reason that you can be a descendant from Israel and not belong to Israel is because Paul's talking about two Israels here. And the first Israel that he's talking about are, are physical descendants of Israel. In other words, ethnic Jews, ethnic national Israelites. That's the first Israel that he's talking about here. The second Israel that he's talking about here is what you would refer to as, as the true Israel, the, the spiritual Israel. This is an Israel that isn't simply made up of, of ethnic ...national Jews... ...but this is an Israel that's made up of believing Jews... ...and also believing Gentiles. It's an Israel that's made up of of both groups... ...in Christ, as we'll see. And this isn't the first time in this letter... ...that Paul's talked about this. And said earlier in the letter... ...and you don't have to turn there... ...you can just jot this down... ...but in Romans chapter 2... ...verses 28 and 29... ...Paul makes this distinction between these two Israels, between these two, two, two Jews. Ethnic, national Israel and true spiritual Israel. In Romans chapter 2, verse 28 and 29, he says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. He's making this distinction here, just like he's making in Romans chapter 9, verse 6, that there are those who are true ethnic national Israelites, who are physical descendants of Israel. And he's saying that just because you're a physical descendant of Israel, an ethnic Jew, does not mean that because of that, that you belong to true spiritual Israel, which is the Israel of the promise, which is a reference to believing Jews and believing Gentiles in Christ. Since that's true, then that's the that's the reason, that's the answer. Then that Paul gives for why for why God's promise in His Word to Israel, hasn't failed. It hasn't failed because God's promises of salvation and eternal blessing and this lasting kingdom was never intended for every ethnic national Israelite. Instead, it was intended for the true Israel, for for the true spiritual Israel, the believing Israel, the saved Israel, which is composed of believing Jews and believing Gentiles. And since that's true, then God's promises that He made to Israel in the Old Testament, they continue on and they continue to be fulfilled through true spiritual Israel who are trusting in Jesus by faith, even though now ethnic national Israel is accursed and condemned and cut off from Christ for their rejection of Jesus. Beginning in verse seven, I know that was a lot, but beginning in verse seven, what Paul does then is he gives us two illustrations or two examples here to illustrate the point that he just made in verse six, that not all who are physical descendants of Israel belong to true spiritual Israel or Israel, the Israel of the promise. And these two examples, these two illustrations here show that God's promises of salvation, his promise of blessing, his promise of this coming kingdom, it's not for every physical descendant of Israel, but it's only for those who belong to true spiritual Israel. And he makes this point by these two examples that he gives starting in verse 7 all the way through verse 13. And the first example that he gives to prove this point and illustrate this point is the example of Abraham's two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. And we see this in verse seven, look there with me. Paul writes this, he says, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. So then if you're, you remember the, the backstory here, Abraham, one of the, the patriarchs of Israel had, had two sons and he had one son with his Egyptian servant by the name of Hagar and that son's name was, was Ishmael. And then he had another son with his wife Sarah and that son's name was Isaac. And so both sons were biological children of Abraham. They were physical descendants of Abraham. But only one of those two sons, Isaac, was a child of the promise. And therefore was, was part of the, the promised Israel that was going to be fulfilled. And the reason then that, that Paul brings this up is to prove again, right? And to show that not all who are physical descendants of Abraham, are children of the, of the promise and, and belong to the true spiritual Israel. I, instead, Isaac received the promise, but Ishmael did not, even though they were both physical descendants and biological children of Abraham. In verse 10 then, Paul gives a, a second example to prove this point. In this second example, Paul goes down one generation from, from, from Isaac and Ishmael. And he goes down to the generation of, of Isaac's children, Jacob and Esau. And this is what he writes there in verse 10. Look there with me. Paul says, and not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older, referring to Esau here, will serve the younger, referring to Jacob. Then he says in verse 13, as it is written, then he quotes here from Malachi chapter one, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So this example here, the second example here, it's pretty different, right, from the first example that he gave of Isaac and and Ishmael. That that in that first example, you, you could see why Isaac would have been chosen as the child of promise instead of Ishmael, right? Ishmael was conceived as a result of Abraham's sin with an Egyptian servant. And so then Ishmael wouldn't have had like this ethnic lineage, this pure ethnic lineage and ethnic grounds as, 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 as Isaac had. And so it made sense and it made logical sense then for God to choose Isaac to be a child of the promise because he had a more, more pure ethnic lineage than, than Ishmael had. But that's not the case when it comes to Jacob and Esau, is it? Instead, instead when it comes to Jacob and Esau, they, they didn't come from two different women. An, uh, an Israelite and no, an Egyptian woman, and said so they came from the same woman, Rebecca. And they didn't just come from the same woman, Rebecca. They were like conceived at the exact same time. Like they were twins. And they were conceived by the same father, Isaac. And they were pretty much born at the exact same time. One was born a little bit ahead of the other, but but they're born pretty much at the exact same time. So then unlike Isaac and and Ishmael, neither Jacob or or Esau had an ethnic advantage or an ethnic priority over the other. And so they they were as equal as you could get. Yet, even though they were as equal as you could get in every way, and neither had an ethnic priority or an ethnic advantage over the other. Verse 11 says that before even one of them were born, like before either of them had done anything good or anything bad, before either of them had said anything good or said anything bad, before either of them had believed or not believed, before any of that, before there was even a Jacob, before there was even an Esau. God chose Jacob instead of Esau to receive the blessing and to be the child of the promise. And that's why when we get to verse 13, God uses the language that He does here in verse 13 when He says... Jacob, I have loved, and Esau, I have hated. That language there, this love-hate language, isn't a reference to sinful, emotional hate and anger like we as humans experience at times in our relationships with with others. Instead, this love-hate language is a Hebrew idiom that's often used when someone chooses one and rejects the other. And this isn't unique here to Romans chapter 9, verse 13. Instead, we see this same sort of language in different places all throughout Scripture. And so you don't need to look these up, but but just jot down Genesis chapter 29. If you remember in Genesis chapter 9, there's the story there of Jacob and Laban's two daughters, Rachel and Leah... And if you remember, Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. And so he chose Rachel to be his wife and not Leah. And so at the end of that story then, the writer there summarizes what's all taken place. And he says that Rachel was loved and Leah was hated. That doesn't mean that Jacob despised and emotionally hated and was angry and despised Leah. Instead, it simply means that Jacob chose Rachel instead of Leah. And we see the same language from the lips of Jesus, right? In Luke chapter 14, verse 26. If you remember there in Luke chapter 14, verse 26, Jesus tells his disciples that if anyone does not hate his father and mother and wife, and children, and brothers, and sisters. If he doesn't hate them, you can't be his disciple. So again, that doesn't mean that Jesus is encouraging us, commanding us, wanting us to sinfully and emotionally despise and hate every single member of our family. Instead, he's using the same Hebrew idiom that means that if we want to be his disciple, we do, though, have to choose him over our family. And so then that's what this love-hate language is all about. It's election language. It's choosing language. It's language that's used to describe God's choosing one, Jacob, and rejecting and not choosing the other, Esau. Which then leads to this million-dollar question. Why? Why did Jacob, why did God, excuse me, choose Jacob and not Esau? I mean, right, if we're reading this right, Esau, another twins, another born, just about at the right same time, but Esau came out first, right? Like he was technically the firstborn. So he would have been the obvious choice, not Jacob. So again, why did God choose Jacob and not Esau? Like again, we've already seen it. They hadn't even been born. Hadn't, it's not like Jacob was a better dude than Esau. It's not like Jacob was going to do anything good or bad that Esau hadn't done. They, like, they're completely equal in, in every way. Same physical lineage and descent. No ethnic priority or advantage over the other. So why in the world did God choose Jacob and not Esau? Well, the only answer that Paul gives to that question is found at the end of verse 11. Look there with me. Paul says that the reason God chose Jacob and not Esau... Was in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Do you catch that? That God chose Jacob and not Esau simply because that was God's purpose and will. That's it. There's no other reason, there's no other explanation. He didn't choose Jacob and not Esau because of Jacob's ethnicity or physical lineage or because of how good a dude that Jacob was going to be when he was born or because of a decision that Jacob was going to make later on in his life or anything like that. Instead, God's choice of Jacob had absolutely nothing to do with Jacob. And God's choice of Jacob and not Esau had absolutely nothing to do with Esau. Instead, God's choice of Jacob had everything to do with God. It was his purpose. It was his will. That's why he chose him. Period. No other explanation. So then, let's put, that's a lot, okay? Put all this together. We're going to summarize this really quick. Remember the initial question. Has God's word and promise to Israel failed? Because it sure seems like it. Makes all these promises, this blessing and this great kingdom, but then you fast forward and the majority of them are accursed, condemned to judgment and cut off from Christ. Did God go back on his promise or was God so weak that he wasn't able to fulfill his promise? Did God's promise to Israel fail? Paul's answer is no. God's promise didn't fail. And the reason it didn't fail is because God never promised to save every physical descendant of Israel. Instead, He promised to save a true spiritual Israel. He promised to save the children of the promise. And the way you became a child of the promise wasn't by physical descent or lineage or ethnicity. Instead, the way that you became a child of the promise was through God's free, sovereign choice of Jew and Gentile. That's it. And because of that then, God's promise hasn't failed Instead, because of that then, we can be sure and confident and certain that it won't ever fail. And then it will continue and continue and continue until a multitude of people from every tongue and tribe and nation have been redeemed and are sitting in glad worship of Jesus forever and ever and ever. And so then, just hang with me here. Do you see God's purpose in election? Do you you see the purpose behind it? Do you see the reason behind it? God's sovereign election guarantees that God's word and promises of salvation will never fail. In other words, the reality of God's sovereign election guarantees that there will always be a redeemed humanity, children of the promise, a people of God's own possession, and therefore guarantees that God's saving promises won't ever fail. In other words, imagine if God just made all these promises to Israel about how he was going to make them into a great nation and, and... And redeem this and save this great, great people for himself and establish this great kingdom. Imagine if God made all those promises and then if He just sat back and let everything just play out and just watched and observed and see what would happen to see if the promises He made would really come true. If he did that, then, then his promises would never be fulfilled. Instead, his promises would fail. Why? Because the fulfillment of these promises would be 100% completely dependent upon us. His promises would be completely dependent upon sinful, depraved, wicked, wretched humanity in hopes that somehow, some way, we would choose him. And we never, ever would. But God's sovereign election, though, guarantees and assures that God's saving promises will never fail, but that they will continue, and that God will always have a redeemed humanity of believing Jew and believing Gentile. In other words, God's election is the bedrock of God's faithfulness to His promises. God couldn't be faithful to his promises if God didn't freely and sovereignly choose those whom he would save. It would be a crapshoot in hopes that his promises just somehow came to fruition. But we're guaranteed and can be sure that they will come to fruition because he'll see to it that in other words, God's sovereign. He just doesn't make promises and hope they turn out okay. Instead, he he makes promises and he takes the initiative by a sovereign free choice to ensure that his promises are fulfilled. You don't want a God who leaves his promises up to chance. You want a God who makes promises and sovereignly ensures that those promises are fulfilled. And the way he does that, through the promises that he made going back to Israel in the Old Testament, of a redeemed people in an everlasting kingdom, dwelling forever and ever and ever, the way he ensures that promise will be fulfilled is through his free sovereign election and choice of those who would be redeemed and included in that kingdom. So if all that is true, and I know, like, let me just say this. I hated that, this doctrine for years, okay? Like, it took me forever to, to, to come to this point. But in saying that, like, I know, like, there are objections. They're like, but what about this? What about that? I I get all that. I'm sympathetic toward that. Come next week, okay? Starting verse 14 through 29, title of the sermon is the objections to election of God's election or something like that, okay? So a lot of objections. We'll, We'll talk about that next. That's next week's sermon, right? This is the Christmas sermon. So, but... In light of all that, right, in light of all that, light of all that we've seen, we're almost done, in light of all that, then what are the implications of these truths that we've just seen on our lives today? Like what impact, what effect should the reality of what we've just seen have on our lives today? Let me mention three, I'll do this really quick And then we'll we'll be done. They're they're not on the right order on your handout there. Kind of got them all mixed up. But follow along with me here. The first implication of, of this reality of God's sovereign election is this. Is that it should humble us. It should humble us. Like if this doctrine doesn't humble you, then you don't understand it. If this doctrine fills you with pride, you don't understand it. The way you can tell if you understand this doctrine is if you're humbled. As if you're humbled. There are some, let me address this real quick. There are some who come to this passage and say that what Paul is teaching here is corporate election. In other words, there's, we could get a lot here, but I'll try and make this brief. They, they would say what Paul's teaching here isn't that God chooses individuals for salvation before they were born and, 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 and just simply based on his free sovereign choice, And so they would say what Paul's teaching here is that God chose Israel. God chose the nation of Israel. And so all this talk about God choosing Isaac and God choosing Jacob is just to show that God chose the corporate nation of Israel, not individuals, to salvation. The only problem with that interpretation is that that doesn't fit with the whole point of the passage that we just looked at. That doesn't fit with the the problem of the passage that we just looked at. That doesn't fit with the question of the passage that the passage is raising. In other words, the whole point of the passage that we just looked at is to show that the reason God's saving promises to Israel haven't failed is because he sovereignly chose particular individuals from within the nation to be part of the children of the promise. In this way, then God didn't just choose the the nation. He chose particular individuals within that nation to be included into his true spiritual Israel, his, his children of the promise. And if you're a Christian here this morning, that's exactly what he did to you. Like if you're a Christian here this morning, if this hadn't registered yet, just just hear this, please. If you're a Christian here this morning, the reason that you're a Christian isn't because you're smarter than all your non-Christian friends. If you're a Christian here this morning, the reason you're a Christian isn't because you're you're more enlightened than all your non-Christian family members. The reason that you're a Christian isn't because of your intellect or or logical reasoning to come to these truths or the reason you're a Christian isn't because, I mean, you're a pretty good moral person and you kind of deserve to be a Christian. You kind of deserve to make the cut. Instead, please hear this. If you're a Christian here this morning, then you're a Christian for one reason and one reason only. Because God freely and sovereignly chose you according to his will and according to his purpose. Not according to your future belief, not according to your good deeds, not according to your ethnicity, not according to your physical lineage, but simply according to his purpose and his will. And the reality of that, like if you let that just sink in, the reality of that should like kill and expel every ounce of self-righteousness and pride that we have in our lives. And instead it should leave us like stunned. It should leave us astonished. And it should swell our hearts up in, with humility. Charles Spurgeon once said, he said, I believe the doctrine of election. Because I am quite certain that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. And I'm sure he chose me before I was born or else he never would have chosen me afterwards. And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me for I never could find any reason in myself why he should have looked upon me with selfish love. If that doesn't humble you, I don't know what what will. Secondly then, the reality of God's sovereign election should give us confidence in knowing that Christ will build his church. Like, this is huge right here, especially in light of this cultural moment we find ourselves in right now and that we found ourselves in the last year, especially when it comes to, and I won't get into this much, but when it comes to, like, politics and this recent presidential election that we just went through or is still in the middle of or whatever your view on that is, that when it comes to all of that stuff, like, one of the things that concern me the most about this last presidential election is how worried and anxious and how so many Christians were just wringing their hands and how afraid they were and how afraid so many still are when it comes to the future of the church what's going to happen to the church if so and so gets what's going to what, if so and so gets what's what's going to happen to the church and so afraid so scared so so fearful and anxious and worried about what's going to happen to the church And again, please hear my heart in this. I'm not minimizing the value of voting and the importance of voting or saying that elections don't have consequences because they do and all of those things. Yes, and amen to all that. At the same time though, as Christians, it's important to remember that the future of the church isn't dependent upon a presidential election. Instead, the future of the church is dependent upon God's sovereign election. And that is so true. In other words, because of God's sovereign election, we can be certain, we can be confident and sure that his saving promises won't ever fail. And because of that, there's nothing at all that will ever hinder Christ from building his church. No president will, no group of politicians will, no court will, no Supreme Court justice will, no law that's enacted will, nothing will ever stop God's saving promises from being fulfilled and Christ from building his church. And the reason we can be assured of that is because the church that God is is building, he will see to it that it's built. How can we be sure that he's going to see to it that it's built? It's because of his sovereign election. And no politician, no president, no Supreme Court, no law can stop and hinder his sovereign election, which should give us great confidence in the here and now. Third, then, reality, and we'll stop with this. The reality of God's sovereign election should cause us to worship. Like when you realize that your salvation was completely depended upon God's sovereign choice of you and not and had absolutely nothing to do with you and what you brought to the table but it's simply because of his free, sovereign will and purpose. You can't help but just fall on your knees and worship. Especially if you're born into a family with just unbelieving siblings and parents and brothers and sisters, and you're like, why me? It had nothing to do with you. It had everything to do with God's free sovereign choice. When you realize that God chose you not because he looked down the corridor of time and saw that one day you would make a decision, or he chose you because He issued this general invitation to everyone and you exercised your will to choose him. But if you you just come to the realization that before there was even a you, his sovereign will and purpose was to choose to redeem you and to make you a child of the promise. Praise God. Praise God, and I pray that this wouldn't be a doctrine that causes fights and divisions among us. But I pray that it would be, as we understand the purpose of this doctrine, there would be a division. Uh, it would be a doctrine that doesn't cause fights and divisions among us, but it would cause humility. It would cause worship. And it would cause rock solid confidence that God's saving promises won't ever, ever fail. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for hard passages before Christmas. Thank you for hard truths that, just personally speaking, didn't set well with me at first, that didn't taste well at first, that I spit out at first. But I pray that as you helped me to see and appreciate the purpose of election, that I pray that that would be the case for all of us here this morning. And that as a result, Lord, that we would be confident that you will continue to build your church. You will continue to fulfill your saving promises. There will continue to be a redeemed humanity, children of the promise, made up of Jew and Gentile believers, who are all humble and who are all worshiping at the throne of Jesus because we owe everything to you. It's in the name of Jesus we pray these things. Amen.